Our guest today is Vladislav Yazovsky. He is an associate professor of neuroscience at the University of Oxford and is a leading researcher in the field of sleep, studying the dynamics of brain activity and neurophysiological substrates during sleep in order to answer the question of what is sleep and why is it necessary? He also works on hibernation and torpor and is part of a project with the European Space Agency on hibernation and the benefits that this can provide for astronauts and space travel. As an expert on sleep, when you go to bed at night and enter this state of sleep, whatever that is, do you still find that process mysterious? Uh, yes, I find the process of sleep uh, deeply mysterious. Yeah, if uh, of course there are many other mysterious processes in, uh, happening in the brain and in the body. Just if you think how elaborate is our physiology, our the structure of our body and all the processes happening at so many different levels from subcellars to organismal. Yeah, there are many mysteries clearly. But just if you think that you spend one third of your life in this very uh, abnormal in a way state, then you, you immediately realize, yes, there is a big mystery about that. So how did you get interested in studying sleep and hibernation? Yeah, this, of course, as always happens, happened by chance. So at some point when I was still an undergraduate student, I was looking around and thinking, OK, what, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Uh, uh, and um, I liked animals a lot. So I was from the really childhood when I was still small, this before I can remember, I would always chase insects and animals. I had my house full of animals of all kinds of birds and lizards and snakes and turtles and dogs and cats, of course. And I wanted to be a zoologist uh, without actually thinking, okay, what do I want? What exactly do I want to do about that? Uh, but uh, we had a very strong uh, um, uh, department of physiology at the university in Ukraine where I studied and the professor who was the chair of the physiology department was an absolutely amazing individual, uh, very well read and highly intelligent and very, very interesting personality and he had a lot of influence on me so he, uh, it was made mainly his contribution that I kind of started shifting from pure zoology to something more um, mechanistic, like a, like a physiological angle to that. So uh, throughout your career, you've worked in labs in many places like Switzerland, uh, America, and the UK. Um, do you find any major differences in the lab culture and the research approach in these different countries? Uh, yes, I think all labs are different, although it is not necessarily related to the country, I would say. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I had amazing supervisors, amazing mentors, both well in, in, in the Ukraine and then in Switzerland and then in the US, who um, kind of helped me to become who I am in, in, in very different ways from my experience in Switzerland, where the, 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 the lab and the institute were incredibly well organized, where everything was there for you and you could focus on research to my US experience where there was nothing to, to start with, where you really had to build everything from scratch. And this, both these experiences were, were helpful. So I don't think it is related to the country, but there are different styles and different ways how people lead their labs. And in my experience now, I'm trying to use the best 
what I learned uh, from that. Right. Let's get into sleep then. What is sleep and how do we define it? Uh, there are um, uh, sleep is an interesting concept. Uh, we take it for granted. So we, we are so familiar with sleep because we sleep every day that we don't we rarely think what sleep is. It, you, you just know it. Uh, the, the problem with sleep is that when you start dissecting it, when you think about this in terms of very precise definition, and the deeper you go, the more elusive it becomes. And then you just don't know what sleep is. Right? So just, just think of a sleeping animal, a dog, which looks absolutely asleep, and then you approach, and then suddenly you see the ear moves, and then the, the animal opens the eyes, and then you, you don't know if it was asleep or awake before you approached it. Uh, so sleep uh, is by and large defined as a behavior. And this is how we look at sleep in the first place. The animal or a human find a, a safe, comfortable place. So we take human species specific posture uh, and we close the eyes. Uh, and then, yeah, this is sleep really looks like a behavior. You can put it different ways, the absence of behavior, absence of movement. And this is how we define sleep by immobility and also a state characterized by elevated arousal threshold. So this means you need to apply a stronger stimulus to elicit a, a response. And if you think of all the kind of criteria for sleep we use, uh, to me, it all boils down to, all, to the altered relationship between the organism and the environment. If you see what I mean, so you, when you go to sleep, you stop responding to stimuli uh, coming from outside. So you are not perceiving what is outside and you are not acting upon the environment in response. So I think to me, this is absolutely essential. Sleep evolved as an adaptation to environment in different ways. So I think sleep should be defined as the relationship between organism and the surroundings. As you mentioned, we often take for granted this process of sleep and obviously we've known about sleep for our entire lives and so it seems very intuitive for us that, you know, out of 24 hours in a day, a significant portion of it should go into being in this inactive state of sleep. But I'm not too sure if it's universally obvious in the sense that things must be this way, because it seems really strange that we spend so much of our life completely inactive and dormant. So do you, feel, do you feel this way too? Or do you think that sleep is necessary maybe for life or for intelligence? All right, these are many questions yeah. together. So let me start to try to analyze this a little bit. Of course, first of all, when I take that we take sleep for granted, uh, uh, I don't necessarily mean that we take for granted that sleep is important. Uh, and you will be surprised if you just go, go on the street and ask people and ask them why they sleep, they would usually give you very superficial answers, very intuitive, very superficial, but people don't really think about that. They would all often say, well, this is just to rest, right? Uh, and then when you ask, okay, what exactly is resting in your brain, in the body? Why do you need to be asleep to obtain rest? And they will be silent. <laughs> so, you, you know, you won't give to, get too far with that. Um, but indeed, uh, another way to look at it and how some of our colleagues look at sleep is that whether sleep is a default state of their organism or if wakefulness is a default state of the organism. Uh, one way to look at it is that we are, uh, our default state is wakefulness. And then we go to sleep because it is necessary, because it has some functions. 
So we only go to sleep out of necessity. And this uh, enables, I don't know, functional or normal wakings. You can look at it from other side. So sleep is actually a default state of the organism. We spend our, our life asleep. And you can actually can find quite a few animal species that sleep, spend more time asleep than awake. And we only wake up in order to fulfill other needs, such as feeding or looking for a mate and maybe just a few other things. And then you go back to sleep, right? So you can, you can look at it this way. And this view probably explains this absolutely remarkable diversity in terms of the amount of sleep across the animal kingdom. Like we spend asleep about seven hours, but some animals may spend much more. Some animals can spend asleep much less like elephants, uh, which, uh, which suggests that, okay, this is really all about the balance of uh, different homeostatic needs, which keeps us alive, right? So basically another way to think about it is that all animals are by default sleeping and the, 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 the waking bit is the exception. Yeah, of course, it makes a lot of sense, right? So, so you, uh, if you look at the animal, so what's the point of being awake uh, unless it is for a reason? So what is the reason of being awake? So you look for food, for example. Uh, but once you went out, you found the food, you, you satisfied that need. So why on earth do you need to be awake? I mean, as humans, maybe we make it all complicated. So we also take time to think and walk and enjoy life. But this is also, I mean, it all. So why are why am I going to work? So, uh, so yes, I I enjoy it, but also I I get paid for it, and this helps me to go do some grocery shopping. So it's still uh, my wakeful life a lot um, explained by the need to satisfy very basic um, uh, requirements. Hmm. I know it may sound a bit disappointing, <laughs> but yeah, this is indeed a view that some of our colleagues hold that sleep is a default state. Uh, and uh, it, it's energetically um, uh, kind of be better than, than wakefulness. It's more safe. Uh, so hmm. so you, you, you rather would spend more time on this default basic state than in, in a wake state, which is stressful. Right. So when you're awake, it's always stress. So the reason why we're awake, one partly why we're awake for like uh, such long periods of time, could, is that partly because of how there's a selective pressure if everyone stayed asleep for very long, uh, you just get you just become a prey. Yeah, this is a bit complicated because yeah, the, there is uh, there is some relationship um, uh, that was found between uh, your vulnerability as a, as a prey and your sleep-wake dynamics, sleep-wake architecture. Although it is remarkable how little studies have been done in this regard. Uh, so you can look. Uh, so the predominant view is that sleep is a vulnerable state. And this refers to one of its key defining characteristics that, that you are not perceiving your environment. This is also complicated. We can talk separately about that, that your brain is actually responding to the uh, environmental stimuli when you are deep asleep, but you are not, it doesn't kind of translate in an adequate behavioral response. Still, you are disconnected. You're not perceiving your environment and a predator can approach the prey and attack it. Uh, and, um, and therefore sleep is a vulnerable state. 
but you can also look at, uh, at it from the other view. So for some, in some other cases, uh, during sleep, you're actually protected because you are hiding. You're usually in the burrow, you're not running around, uh, and therefore it is less likely that you will be chased by a predator. Uh, so it, it is all, uh, I mean, the, you're raising a very important point. It is, it is in a way, a balance. And we should consider not only about um, your vulnerab vulnerability as a prey or uh, the likelihood to find prey if you're a predator, but sleep, uh, sleep cannot be taken out of the context of your in in intrinsic internal homeostatic needs and also the environmental contingencies that you have to adapt to. So sleep cannot be understood uh, out, out of the context. And this is, I think, very important that needs to be taken into account. Previously, you mentioned that you believe that the adaptation to the environment is what you think sleep initially evolved for. Could we talk about that for a bit more? And maybe could you talk about some of the other explanations that have been provided for why we sleep? Yes. Okay. So just to correct, so I didn't mean that sleep evolved as an adaptation, but the way sleep is reflects how organisms adapt to the environment. So we, uh, so environment impacts our sleep in very fundamental ways. Sleep evolved in a certain environment. And this in a way, a problem that we are trying to understand sleep in the lab in conditions which are radically different from those where sleep evolved. And I think it is a fundamental mistake. So my dream is in the future, we are going to study sleep in the wild, which is, of course, methodologically, technically is much more difficult and conditions are much more unpredictable, unstable, and, uh, and this will confound our results, which, and we, which we have to somehow deal with. But in the future, uh, I think this is the only way to understand the, the, the true biological meaning of sleep is to study sleep in the context. Um, so, so in this way, uh, sleep is better understood as an adaptation to environment. You can, uh, uh, I can give you maybe an example. So I was involved in a study in collaboration with um, a group of zoologists at Oxford Brooks who have a station in, in Indonesia and they study a nocturnal primate called, called slow loris. Uh, so they put an, um, a, a collars on their necks which uh, allowed to record movement of these animals. So uh, immobility is not sleep, but you can get a pretty good idea about the sleep pattern of these primates when you look at the activity profile. Uh, and they also had data of the sunrise and sunset. Uh, and when we look at these activity plots of these animals, uh, which are nocturnal, so they're active during the night, they're inactive during the day. And you can, you can see how incredibly well they're synchronized with the environment. You, you could really predict when is the sunset and sunrise, just looking at when they become active, uh, when they become quiet. And this to me, absolutely a beautiful example, how you sleep and sleep and you, how you're awake in sync with the world. Uh, and, and, and this is the most beautiful demonstration of how your sleep wake behavior is adapted to the uh, predictable uh, changes in the environment. But this is just one view, of course, and we can talk more about that. There are other theories what sleep is for, right? So this is probably where you're going, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and uh, so here uh, we can come to the question, why do we sleep? 
So why do we sleep has uh, to me two kind of meaning, uh, you know, in, in English, why means how come and what for. Uh, so how come is, okay, what are the mechanisms that produce sleep state? And this is a long and fascinating topic. Uh, we still don't know exactly. And another is the biological purpose of sleep, like what for? Uh, and here we don't really agree uh, that we, between ourselves, if you look at the sleep community. Uh, so and there are several leading theories. So starting from uh, sleep is for the brain or sleep is uh, for the body or sleep is simply adaptive inactivity, or sleep is, is crucially important and, uh, because it plays an active role in metabolic clearance of products of metabolism, byproducts of metabolism, or it contributes to synaptic plasticity and memory consolidation. Uh, uh, and, and, and I think we, we don't have a um, clear answer yet in this regard. Do you have a favorite explanation that you're most convinced by? Um, my favorite explanation. So I don't think I would have a favorite explanation. It's it's all about how much evidence you have in support or against each of the hypotheses. Uh, and I do not have a favorite one because uh, because I think often um, uh, we we are not uh, asking the right questions here. And even our approach, our methodology we use to address the question, why do we sleep, is not often adequate. And this is not because we, 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 we cannot design a, a clever experiment, but this is because sleep is such a complex process uh, that it is inherently difficult to address. So to, to give a simple example, for example, um, if let's say, uh, we want to test the hypothesis that sleep is important for metabolic recuperation. Uh, and even if we talk about specifically the brain, let's say there is a depletion of some substance in the brain that happens during wakefulness and needs to be restored during sleep. So how would you address this uh, uh, hypothesis? So you need a proper methodology to monitor the levels of that substance, which may indeed change as a function of sleep and wake. But how to show that this is uh, a cause of uh, sleep and wake to occur? And how can you show that sleep and wake are in essential for regulating that variable? So you need to somehow manipulate sleep and wake, right? Uh, so they, for one of the most widely used techniques is so-called sleep deprivation. When we keep the organism, the animal or human awake, for a few hours beyond the normal bedtime, and then we see what happens with the substance. Uh, but it's not necessarily a right approach, right? Because you're not simply removing sleep. You're removing sleep with, um, with wakefulness, with a completely different state, uh, at an inappropriate time of day. So you get uh, inappropriate exposure to light. So you, you, you bring in so many other variables that, that could affect your variable of interest. But when you, if you are really rigorous, uh, it, it, you, you realize that it is very difficult to link it directly with sleep and wake. And it's just one example. And another is that sleep is a, uh, there are so many things about sleep that can play a role here. So sleep is of two different kinds, non-rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. 
Uh, and the ratio between the two is highly variable between animals. You know, some animals don't even have REM sleep, like dolphins, like marine mammals, they don't have any REM sleep. And then, you know, you can have wonderful theories about function of REM sleep studying humans. And then you go to dolphins and you find they don't have REM sleep. So does it mean REM sleep is actually optional? You don't need it. But then why on earth you have you had REM sleep rest last night is functionally important, uh, right? It's um, I don't want to uh, kind of trivialize these things. And yes, we should kind of do um, uh, well controlled uh, studies in in strictly controlled laboratory conditions and do all these experiments. But I think it is really important to be open-minded and not jump to big conclusions uh, without kind of considering the big picture. Is this idea that that different that you mentioned dolphins and many other animals show very different sleep patterns? Does that also link back to how we were talking about um, sleep, like is an adaptation to the environment? Uh, yes, so there are, uh, there are, of course, two uh, aspects here. One is uh, intrinsic homeostatic needs, as already mentioned, and another is environmental contingencies. So, uh, so a lot of what, what can explain different amount of sleep across the animal kingdom is, for example, their dietary requirements or metabolic needs. For example, predators, they usually sleep much more than herbivores. And this is because uh, at least one possible explanation is herbivores, they need, they, they eat very low calories food. So they, they, they have to eat basically all the time to obtain the necessary amount of nutrients. And the predators, they, they, they caught a prey, they had the meat, and then they can afford to not hunt for a few days. And they go and spend a lot of time in a default state during this time. Right, so so this is something that is important, uh, and um, so and this is this refers to uh, how they are, how how the animals are, the intrinsic uh, needs. Uh, but but again, indeed, it's very easily you can see, look at it with respect to relationship with the environment. Right. Before we get into the neurobiology and the mechanisms of sleep, why do we care about the neurobiology of sleep, like other than just to satisfy our curiosity? Um, yeah, satisfying curiosity is a very important aspect indeed. And uh, to me, uh, sleep is such a fundamental kind of part of our biology. And, and uh, I, I'm talking here about both sleep and circadian rhythms, because we evolved on a rotating planet where day and night is probably the most predictable thing around ever. Uh, and and we, we adapted to that. So, so we have an intrinsic circadian clock that works to prepare us to anticipate changes in the environment so that we, again, adapt better to the environments. It's always kind of comes into play. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and since uh, sleep and circadian rhythmicity are, are such a fundamental part of our biology and physiology, I think uh, any question in biology, any question in physiology, any question in neurobiology, we are asking, we should keep sleep and circadian rhythmicity uh, in mind. Uh, to me, this is crucial. And I'm actually, I find it striking how often you find that this is neglected. 
to the extent that even if you in pharmacology studies, you can give the drug at different time of day and you may have very different response. And nobody thinks about this, although there are, it, it is so fundamentally important for clinical, in clinical trials, drug trials, uh, and I'm talking about this um, uh, approach called chronotherapy, uh, which can uh, uh, have huge economic implications and health for healthcare implications, but we are neglecting. So I think we, uh, we, we must understand sleep and circadian rhythms uh, uh, as a part of any question we are addressing. Should we be thinking of these different physiological processes as like a function of time? So like, are we missing this time dimension when we're trying to investigate other, even other physiological phenomena in the body? Uh, yes, and here uh, I can talk about two processes and our fundamental understanding of how sleep and wake are controlled builds on a so-called two process um, model. Uh, according to this model, uh, our, our sleep, wake and behavior and probably many other functions are shaped by two processes. One is the circadian process, and this again refers to the circadian rhythmicity. Uh, and uh, yes, indeed, depending on the time of day, when you look at our physiology, you, you will obtain very different signatures. And, 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 and this again makes a lot of uh, sense uh, for us and to, to uh, for, for make us function better in the rhythmic environment. And the second temporal domain that uh, we, we should discuss here is what we call a uh, homeostatic process, which refers to um, our intrinsic uh, kind of mechanism of keeping uh, track of time spent awake or asleep. Uh, and this is this to me this this is really a true mystery. Like how how do we know that we should sleep seven hours every day, even if we are in a completely free time free environment? We don't know what time it is. We can turn on and off light whenever we like, but still we sleep approximately seven hours. So there must be a fundamental timekeeping mechanism that counts. Every minute of your time um, awake counts uh, and, uh, to make you know somehow um, when to take this very interesting decision to go to bed. Yes, and this is this temporal dynamics of our wake and sleep uh i think are absolutely key for all other processes do we have any ideas about how this time is represented in the brain no no so this is the to me this is uh, you know what what happens for example with the circadian clock so circadian clock the master clock uh is found in the suprachiasmatic nucleus so this is the paired nuclei in the hypothalamus they are very small and although every cell in the body has the molecular uh, um, mechanism of the clock, the, you need a, a center, uh, um, some sort of a integrator that maintains all the clocks around the body uh, in a specific phase relationship. So, but if you look closely, so SCN suprachiasmatic nucleus consists of many individual cells and each of those cells is an autonomous oscillator. If you record those cells in isolation, they will uh, show uh, quite quite uh, quite big differences in their behavior in terms of period, for example. Some uh, cells would oscillate with a period of maybe only 15 hours, others 30 hours. But if you average them all together, you will uh, arrive to 24 hours. 
So it is some sort of integration that is happening, like uh, group intelligence or collective intelligence that everybody contributes somehow to this decision. And on average, the body knows uh, the time. Maybe something similar happens with sleep. Different, um, let's say that uh, all cells or organs need, need sleep as a restorative process for whatever reason. But clearly they have different requirements. So there are some cells which are highly metabolically active. They need a lot of recovery. Other cells maybe not doing much, uh, depending on conditions, so they may not need much recovery. But still behave, sleep as a global behavioral state. So you probably need to somehow integrate in terms of space and time all these signals that reflect the amount of activity. And this somehow results in us having seven hours of sleep as a, as a global organism. This is a hypothesis. It is very difficult to test, but I, I, I think it, it is something in this direction. Mm. Is that sort of uh, related to the idea of sleep depth? And uh, could we think of the, 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 the time that we spend sleeping every day as a result of just like paying back the sleep debt? Yeah, this is a very good question. Because so why, okay, let's, let's think. So why do we have this seven hours of sleep? And if we don't obtain the seven hours of sleep, we, we experience uh, higher sleep propensity, it's higher sleep pressure. So one possibility is that you need those seven hours to um, fulfill certain functions, right? So, so we are just built this way that in course of our remaining whatever 16 hours of wakefulness, uh, certain changes happen in our brain or, or the body and to restore them, to bring them back to the original point, you need about seven or eight hours of sleep. Uh, and, and this would be I mean, the, the, the predominant view in the field that this is what, what is happening. So you, the duration and also, also maybe intensity of your sleep are determined by a variety of processes during wakefulness. And this is how, this is the way it is, right? So maybe some other animals need a bit more or less. But another way to look at it is that, you know, if you think about this seven hours, it is somehow non-negotiable. It is not optional. It looks like we are, uh, like we are programmed to obtain those seven or eight hours of sleep, no matter what. And this is why indeed even patients in persistent vegetative state uh, they still have sleep requirement. They, they still uh, show sleep-wake behavior. Although they probably engaged in um, learning, for example, much less or interaction with the environment much less than we normally do. Uh, and, and then you can think, okay, maybe we are programmed to obtain those seven or eight hours of sleep for the reasons we don't yet understand, uh, but they may not be directly related to our immediate preceding wake experience. And this is a, a mystery. So this is something that we need to kind of consider when we discuss our sleep need and sleep debt. You know, what is sleep, sleep pressure? Uh, it may be just a mechanism that enforces those seven hours of sleep for reasons we don't understand, right? It's, uh, it's the way to put you asleep, to prevent you being awake around the clock. <laughs> Maybe you're not supposed to be out there for 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do we have any ideas about what this 
idea of sleep that that seems quite abstract so how does the brain you know know like what is the like how long you've been awake for and like how much sleep depth there should be we we, we do not know we do have some measures uh, that reflect our preceding sleep wake history and this is what we didn't talk yet uh, here is uh, one of the uh, fundamental defining characteristics of sleep in terms of brain activity. So during sleep, uh, we uh, 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 transition back and forth between two states, non-rapid eye moment sleep and rapid eye moment sleep. Non-REM sleep is characterized by EEG slow wave activity. This is one of the predominant oscillatory activities during sleep where you observe high amplitude slow waves at a frequency of around one to four hertz. Uh, and, uh, and these low waves, they define um, the state. This is how we, we, we define the state. But in addition, slow wave activity reflects also uh, very precisely the pre your preceding sleep-wake history. If you measure slow wave activity during the, your first sleep cycle, it will be predictably higher if you were sleep deprived, if you skipped the previous night. But if you take an, a nap, in the middle of the day, you discharge your sleep pressure, and then slow activity during subsequent night will be lower. So this was this idea of the of uh, what we already mentioned before. Sleep homeostasis was proposed 40 years ago by Alex Borbe in collaboration with um, Damien Bersma and Sergi Dan in in the Netherlands. So they proposed this view that uh, sleep is homeostatically regulated and it is reflected in slow wave activity. So why I'm bringing this up? Because we do consider slow wave activity as a very reliable measure of sleep depth or sleep pressure. Uh, and, and this provides us with a very unique opportunity to understand the neurobiological substrate of this mysterious sleep depth because we can manipulate and try to understand where the slow activity dynamics coming from because it may directly reflect to the mysterious sub substrate of sleep pressure, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Right. Can we talk more about the slow wave activity? What causes the slow wave activity? Is, is it a phenomenon that we could sort of reduce into a molecular description in the same way we can describe an action potential in terms of the flow of ions? Uh, yes. Uh, so then, uh, so EEG, as you know, was was observed first time, recorded first time about 100 years ago, but only relatively recently we uh, obtained a, a better idea about the underlying cellular and network uh, phenomenon. And this is uh, thanks to several of our colleagues, including Mirsha Stiriad uh, in Canada. So they were able to record um, membrane potential of individual neurons in a sleeping animal. Uh, so first, they actually uh, did these recordings and also other colleagues, not in, in a, during physiological normal sleep. It is technically more difficult. But most of our initial knowledge about the underlying substrates of slow waves came from either uh, in vitro preparation, when you record a slice of the brain in a dish, or uh, when you record in an animal which is anesthetized. So, you know, the, the medical doctors, they call anesthesia sleep, although, and indeed there are some very important similarities, although there are also important differences, but in under certain conditions, brain activity under anesthesia can be very similar to sleep. So this is why we do use these approaches to 
understand mechanisms of sleep slow activity. So it was found that EEG slow waves, they correspond to a very peculiar behavior of individual neurons. So they uh, undergo periods of what we call hyperpolarization and depolarization. Uh, it is not strictly speaking an oscillation. It is more correct to refer to as bistability because the member potentially kind of switches between two states. Hyperpolarized meaning more negative. And this of course brought about by the uh, positive ions leaving the cells uh, and, and depolarized state. When, uh, when the membrane potential is closer to the threshold for generation of action potential. And this is when cells are firing and they're exchanging information. They're sending uh, action potentials to each other. And there is most, if not all, synaptic activity happening during this up state. And these transitions between up and down states happen approximately the frequency of slow waves recorded at the level of the EEG. Uh, and uh, and uh, sometimes you can see beautiful correspondence and we think that spatial summation of the bit of this behavior of individual neurons gives rise to the occurrence of field potentials which you pick up with scalp uh, electrodes. Uh, although this phenomenon, the so-called slow oscillation, is observed at the level of individual neurons, clearly each neuron is interconnected with thousands other neurons. So, so we often consider this as a slow oscillation as a network phenomenon. Uh, so this means that one, if one cell stops firing, it does not excite all its neighbors. And those cells are also less likely to get excited. They, they kind of withdraw from activity. They become, they're more likely to hyperpolarize. And this kind of pattern activity can propagate. And we do know that slow waves, they are sometimes considered traveling uh, phenomena. So the slow waves occur somewhere and then it travels around the brain because cells kind of transmit this behavior. So it's not just a temporal oscillation, but there's a spatial aspect to it as well. Yes, absolutely. And this is and something, uh, this something we know very little about because you know it's so difficult to record everywhere at the same time. Whenever we do our experiments, we do this super fancy, tiny electrodes. We record 100 neurons and we are very proud of that. But if you think that we record such a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the entire picture that we, we our entire idea about sleep is based you know, on this <laughs> tiny glimpse of the entire picture. And this is probably also what slows down the progress here. So, this slow wave activity, is that because um, I'd imagine if a neuron is engaging in slow wave activity, it wouldn't be able to conduct its normal activity? Does that sort of underlie the why we're unaware of our surroundings when we're asleep? Yeah, this is one of the uh, ideas indeed that uh, obviously by definition, when neurons don't spike, they do not transmit information. And especially during deep sleep, uh, characterized by high amplitude, globally synchronized slow waves, you have these moments when everybody is silent, nobody is talking to each other. Uh, and uh, it has been indeed showed also in humans by Marcello Massimini, for example, that the occurrence of this off states they can effectively interrupt propagation of information. Uh, so, as already mentioned, the brain is actually remarkably responsive to ex external but also internal stimuli but you know it can reach the primary sensory area but then it 
may not or would not effectively propagate further because of this global cessations of activity that prevent uh, this from propagating further. Perhaps this is what is required to reach consciousness and trigger behaviors. So, but why is it that being unaware of your surroundings and maybe this slow wave activity, why, why is that beneficial for the body? Uh, to be unaware, yeah, okay, that, that's of course an, uh, an interesting question. Uh, so you, um, so th that could be a simple explanation that this is just unresponsiveness is simply a byproduct of the process. So you, uh, let's say you sleep not at all in order to produce unresponsiveness, but you need to enter this uh, state of activity either for metabolic restoration, because of course you're saving a lot of energy when you're not spiking all the time, or you, um, when you go to sleep, you produce certain patterns of oscillations like sleep spindles and slow waves, which uh, affect the propagation of information, which somehow contributes to offline information processing. And this simply not compatible with you being responsive to this round. Uh, and uh, if you think, uh, okay, what are, how the state is maintained? So you, uh, you need this subcortical network of uh, neuromodulatory neurons, circuits like noradrenaline, dopamine, histamine, acetylcholine. This is all those neurotransmitters that keep the brain active. Uh, they effectively decrease the activity during sleep in order to permit this very peculiar types of activity in the forebrain. And this by itself is incompatible with uh, alertness, uh, movement, and so on. Could we uh, move on to talk about hibernation and cryosleep briefly? Um, so, you know, many mam mammals like bears and lemurs, they're able to hibernate. So why can't humans? Uh, well, we don't know. Maybe humans can. Uh, there is nothing really special about us humans that prevents us from hibernating. And a good example, as you just mentioned, there are lemurs, there are primates that can hibernate. Uh, the question is, okay, if we are in theory capable of that, we, uh, one scenario is we just, uh, uh, we were capable to do it recently, but we lost this adaptation because we now have other means to deal with harsh environmental conditions, right? So we have agriculture, we have cloth, we can hide from cold weather. So we have other adaptations, which replaced the hibernation, which is also an adaptation to harsh environmental conditions. Uh, but uh, uh, another possibility is that indeed we spend uh, our life in conditions which are uh, which do not necessitate, if you see what I mean, the occurrence of hibernation. So maybe if we were living in a, in uh, again in the real world where other animals live, maybe then suddenly we have this insight how to enter hibernation. In a way, uh, if uh, I, I really like this analogy and, and and comparison between sleep and hibernation, just think about yourself, um, how you enter the sleep state. So it is impossible to catch the moment when you fall asleep. You don't, you don't do it consciously. Sleep just happens. So, um, uh, you know, I like the comparison with what um, philosopher Daniel Dennett called uh, competence without comprehension. We are such a good experts in falling asleep. We, we, we do it every night. 
but we do not know how we do it. Uh, we just fall asleep when sleep pressure reaches a certain level and the right time of day. Maybe there is a certain set of conditions that suddenly will bring back this intrinsic capacity to enter hibernation. Maybe it is actually incredibly easy. And then suddenly we start hibernating. So I think we should be open to this possibility that we just need to unlock the secret. And we are just not looking at it in the right set of conditions. Let's say if we were ethically allowed to do so, if we put a baby in the world and say it survives in the harsh conditions, we might expect that it could develop some sort of hibernation behavior. Uh, uh, yeah, you don't, don't need to do this with the baby because, uh, of course, babies have uh, 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 immature thermoregulatory system. And indeed, uh, uh, newborn animals, young animals, they, they can remarkably easy enter a state which is similar to torpor or hibernation, but uh, metabolism would reduce. But there were studies a while ago in, in, um, in adult uh, individuals uh, who, who, who were uh, monitored uh, sleeping outside. They were from uh, tribes, and unfortunately I don't remember where from which, uh, which area, um, South America, I, I believe. Uh, and it was shown that they do show quite uh, significant fluctuations in their body temperature when they sleep outside, when it is cold, so, so, so there is uh, um, uh, the, the body temperature which reflects metabolic rates can actually be regulated in, even in humans in a wider range than we typically experience. So yes, I think it's, it's about again, uh, designing a clever experiments which would be ethically uh, acceptable. Uh, and I think, um, yeah, it, it may be easier than we think. Uh, but we don't even know why animals enter the hibernation. So the remarkable thing that the animals enter torpor or hibernation via sleep. You have to fall asleep in order to progress into hypometabolism. And this is why I think, so where my interest in this area is, I think the sleep is the, really the key to inducing hibernation in humans. We need to understand better how to induce sleep because then it may, may be from sleep, it may be much easier to progress into hibernation. You don't uh, uh, go into hypermetabolism from awake state. Um, once we understand better how we regulate sleep, it will be much easier to understand how to induce hibernation. And that's where cryosleep comes in, right? So we're putting a human in a, in a harsh like condition and hope that they go into hibernation sort of. Uh, no, it would be, uh, you know, so we are, um, uh, we are always trying, our organism, our body is trying to maintain stability, right? This is called homeostasis. So I wouldn't put a human into harsh conditions, especially <laughs> against your will, because you, it will be stressful and you will engage maybe other mechanisms to deal with that. Mm. It is really about you being happy <laughs> with, uh, with um, accepting uh, the, the need to enter hibernation. Uh, and, and this is, I think, the hard part. You know, the, uh, it, it's, we cannot ask the animal. So let's say a, a hamster 
that I, I have hamsters in my lamp. So, and they very easily enter the state of torpor voluntarily. But uh, on the other hand, they're in conditions which are in a way inescapable, right? So they, it is winter from their perspective and they are adapted to respond to that with, with hibernation. It is not a forced kind of condition. So they are, mm -hmm. they, they just do what they are supposed to do. So I think uh, we need to, again, find the right set of conditions for humans, which would uh, un, uh, reveal this capacity if it's still there. Uh, I, I don't know what you mean exactly by cryosleep, uh, because terminology is a bit confusing here. So we, uh, cryosleep, you, you know, you find, you hear this in uh, science fiction movies, uh, and sometimes it is uh, considered like a state of being frozen, mm. uh, right? Cryo refers to very low temperatures. So uh, I don't think it is really possible, at least right now, to freeze the whole human or animal body and then bring it back and then freeze and you will be back and you're still yourself uh, because of the damage that will likely be caused by freezing. So we are mostly uh, talking about reduction, controlled reduction of metabolic rates to slow down all processes in your body. And this does not even require hypothermia, you know, like bears. They can down-regulate their metabolism by 70% by their body temperature decreases by just a few degrees. And this is probably if you want to send uh, people to Mars, so we are not going to freeze them. I would be surprised if this is what um, people want to study. No, we want to reduce their metabolism with minor decrease in body temperature so that you are in a, in a sleep in state in a way with reduced metabolism. Mm. So yeah, you mentioned this, the project um, you're working with the European Space Agency. So that's about trying to send people to Mars like while they're hibernating, right? Yeah, so the European State Space Agency, as also NASA, they, they express interest in understanding better the feasibility, the possibility of inducing hibernation in humans. So, so that, uh, there are no like a large scale project that actively works on that. So right now we are still for a few years now uh, uh, investigating the, the possibility. So the, uh, the ESA are not yet committed to put in significant amount of money into doing actual research, which I hope they will decide at some point because we can keep discussing it, uh, but we are losing priority. We are losing in this uh, kind of race against, uh, against NASA, for example. So I do hope that ESA will invest uh, there is a lot to do in this area. There are no shortcuts. We have to do research, but we are in, in a good position now to, to research that can advance us in this area. Do you think that, like, how far away do you think are we from that dream of being able to do that, like, safely and effectively, for example, like in sci-fi movies? Um, I, I don't want to give, like, a time frame, but I, I, I think it would it depends crucially on the availability of funding and on, on, um, on, on, on us um, being able to attract some new bright minds who come with fresh ideas. Uh, and and I, I really think it is, it is possible, it is within reach. 
We just need new original ideas how to approach this question. We need some unconventional ideas. How to, and, and looking at sleep and how to manipulate sleep, I think is one of the key uh, steps here. So yeah, so we're talking about sleep and hibernation. And you mentioned that sleep might be necessary for hibernation. Are the two processes, like how do they relate to each other? Are, are they qualitatively different or is it just like hibernation is like a deeper sleep? Yeah, this is a great question that also a lot of um, our work is kind of trying to tackle this. The, the, the issue is that when you compare sleep and hibernation, in a way you compare apples and oranges. So you, it is a categorical mistake. So we compare uh, phenomena which are defined by different set of criteria. Sleep is defined by behavior and brain activity, at least normally in physiological conditions. Uh, hibernation and torpor are defined by metabolic criteria. It is a state of reduced metabolism. There is an overlap, so you can be, you can, the animal who is hibernation looks like they're asleep. Uh, but in theory, and some of our work suggests that this is the case, you can wake up the animal when it is undergoing torpor state, and the animal will uh, suddenly become awake behaviorally, but metabolism will be still low. So I think uh, you, you can uh, disentangle the two, so you can be awake and hibernating. So this means that hibernation is not sleep, right? Uh, but, uh, but the two states, I think, are very intimately and closely related, very closely linked. So you, you uh, uh, in order to reduce metabolism, you, and you need to enter sleep state first. And this is why understanding the, the biology of their relationship is absolutely essential before we can understand hibernation. What do you think are the biggest challenges right now in studying sleep and hibernation? Um, there are so many challenges. <laughs> is it is it um, like technological, like methodology challenges, or do you think that we need to choose the right questions to ask first? Yes, there are probably two levels here. One is a scientific level. So scientifically, and this related to um, availability of techniques, um, uh, which, which are suitable for the questions and availability of expertise, because we are dealing with uh, processes of utterly astounding complexity. So sleep is defined by so many uh, changes in the brain and the body. And as I already mentioned before, we cannot simultaneously monitor everything. So we always have just a tiny part of the entire picture. And therefore, we probably uh, we, we, and therefore we are advancing very small steps. Uh, you know, even if you talk about this wake promoting areas in the brain, so you you have so many of them, and they all contribute to you and me being awake right now. But but we cannot simultaneously monitor all of those and um, dissect their contribution. Another, uh, um, uh, so, so, so the main challenge is the complexity of the states and has been able to address that complexity with existing methodology. Another challenge, the key challenge is that um, uh, I think sleep and also hibernation receive much less attention from 
funders from other colleagues, then they deserve. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I was already saying, that look, so we spent one third of our life asleep and our neurobiology and brain activity changes completely from wake to sleep. But if you go to a neuroscience conference, there will be very little sleep. Uh, uh, and this is a, uh, and even less circadian rhythms. And this is a very unfortunate oversight. So we, I don't think we can make major advances in other big areas, which are very popular now, like neurodegeneration or cognitive function without having sleep in, in the picture. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, it, uh, our progress is, is slow. So it's, it, it's very difficult to obtain funding. Uh, so in my experience, you know, my, I, I'm, uh, I have more success if I if if my grant is about something that is, I would say, relatively superficial and uh, what does not re that is kind of within the existing paradigm and uh, where you know what to expect, sort of. It's very difficult to obtain funding for to address some questions which are not a mainstream, and I think this is a huge hurdle. It is not probably a problem about sleep. Um, but I think our challenge is to attract new unconventional ideas and funding to support that kind of research. As a final question, what advice do you have for young scientists? Uh, what advice? Yeah, find, um, find good supervisors. <laughs> supervisors is important. It's more important than the institution or the surrounding. Uh, so so uh, um, the if, if you have a good supervisor, you have a good team of colleagues. So be collaborative. So collaborations are absolutely important. We cannot achieve anything if you work alone. It's very important. Uh, be prepared um, to deal with difficulties and hurdles and problems. So if you are doing PhD, it is never smooth, never predictable. So there will be ups and downs. And this is a part of the game. So it will be always there and, 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 and don't, don't, don't give up if something doesn't work. Amazing. So Vlad, thanks for coming on the show and it's an honor to have you here. Thank you very much, Pak. It was a pleasure to talk to you.